So in, in our cultivation, we're just we're using faculties that uh, human beings are endowed with, that we've been given, that we're equipped with, and we're emphasizing them, certain strong faculties, certain supportive faculties. Um, so we have this little simple list, confidence, faith. We all have some confidence in something, each other. Yeah. That will be a tomorrow. We have faith that will be a tomorrow. We can't be sure that we have some faith that will be a tomorrow. <laughs> uh, life is worth living. We have some faith in that, that there can be happiness and good fortune or progress of some kind. If you don't have faith in this, it's difficult to keep going just think that tomorrow is going to be miserable and get worse and worse while I keep going. We have some basic faith, some basic trust that there can be improvement and we can improve through particular qualities of effort and energy, clarity. So we also have our ability to apply ourselves, which is called virya. Um, energy application starts off as a sense of eagerness, yeah, I could do that. And then you apply yourself specifically to something, yeah, and you get results. And you get, then once you speak and you get results, you get persistent at it. You stay with that. You bear with it, even through the rough patches. You know, yeah, this is difficult, but I have confidence. And this is how your confidence and your energy gets wise. You know? So these are very important faculties for anyone's life because uh, we're living in a fairly chaotic experience where pain, disease can happen, things can go wrong, and it shakes. It can shake one's confidence. So having confidence in one's uh, in dhamma is a great endowment because dhamma. We understand, we understand Dhamma, we understand the changing nature of circumstances. We understand that life is full of incompletions, uh, conflicts, uh, struggle, suffering. It's not the only thing that's there, but there is quality to it. And we're no longer bowed by it. We're no longer kind of frightened of it. But yeah, this is the road. It's a rough road. Yeah, you got, yeah, but you can get through it. Yeah. So the more that one meets obstacles and and finds a way through, then your confidence increases. And you're wise. You begin to bear in mind. Uh, you bear in mind the results. This bearing in mind is called sati. Mindfulness, the ability to bear something in mind. Mm. You bear in mind that things change. You bear in mind that there is such a thing as dukkha, unsatisfactoriness. You bear in mind there is such a thing as the ceasing of that. And you bear in mind that uh, there's a process and a path that brings that around. 
So these are these then means you're prepared, you're able to meet life. This is actually so Dhamma practice is very realistic. It's not a kind of esoteric philosophical philosophical notion. It's down to earth. And it's given you the equipment to manage life as a human being. And you bear this in mind. And you're mindful of that. You bear the possibility of liberation in mind, which means can mean a range of things. It can mean my mind can be freed from ill will. You know, when it's in ill will, when it's in negativity or bitterness or rancor, I can find a way to free it from that. I can find a way to free myself from panic and fear. So we talk about liberation as not just some kind of ultimate state, but a very practical, um, relative quality, such as, you know, I understand how uh, ill will arises, feel disappointed, things didn't go the way I wanted them to go, things were unpleasant and painful. You know, I can find myself blaming other people or blaming myself, but I can also see, yeah, but all this is making worse. Why don't I just breathe out, relax that, stop the stories, the narratives, and recognize what's for my own welfare. Even what is not for my welfare, doesn't do me any good, doesn't do other people any good just makes the mind twisted and bitter. Why don't I find a way to breathe, relax that, let it go. Then for that moment there's liberation from your will. Now I know this liberation is temporary. So, but then you recognize that. But then you also probably recognize and bear in mind that a deeper penetration is required to clear the roots of it, you know, clear the basis of it. And for this we collect, we gather, this is called samadhi. Samadhi is the ability of the mind to unify so that the surface of the mind is quite calm. We're no longer, the mind is not preoccupied with thoughts about the future, the past, oneself, other people, this, that and the other. And it begins to rest in the sense of the, the mind as a, as an energy, and you can begin to sense how it, it rises up, or it recoils, or it gets dizzy, and you steady it. And you've got a much more uh, clear field to observe. Like if you have a, a whiteboard, yeah. Then you can, it's steady, you can see what arises on it. If it's just a kind of uh, multicolored mass that's moving all the time, you can't really see what's written on it anymore. Hmm? So when the mind is relatively clear and stable, you can see, oh, there, there it is. That's where it arises. Yeah, you know, that kind of, that particular impression triggered that reaction, that one. Yeah. Because you've got a, like a blank screen to watch upon. 
This is the benefit of a composed mind, a samadhi mind. And you keep your wisdom, your ability to look out for these signs that uh, understand how your suffering, uh, displeasure, disappointment, how it occurs. And this wisdom is another faculty we all have. The ability to unify the mind is a faculty we all have. Mm-hmm. Wisdom is a very broad faculty, the ability to discern, to be clear. Right, left, black, white, up, down, that's wisdom. Mm-hmm. But here you're looking at wisdom as there is a sense of mind is calm, spacious, ah, now it's getting agitated, what's that? Yeah. So wisdom, when you cultivate it in a calm mind, takes you to the roots of mental behavior to, into how we get, um, how the sources of suffering occur. And someone, you need to know this uh, from the roots, because the, the, the outer side of it can look pretty pleasant. You know, we don't necessarily the roots of mental behavior. So we, in this we begin to see things like um, excitement, as, which is quite fun. Yeah, we'd be having a good time. Uh, look into that. This is kind of agitating, isn't it? It's sort of... Yeah, and it, it means my mind is no longer so stable and balanced. Mm. Yeah. It's not that it's, it's evil or wrong, it's just that it, it, it has an effect. Yeah. So you discern that, and this is why this steadying, calming process, which is a natural process itself, leads to great results and great fruit. Mm. So these are five faculties. Confidence, and it gives you confidence. There is a way out of these, particularly when you get familiar habits of mind, familiar, uncomfortable, pointless, tedious, annoying states of mind habits. <laughs> you know, you find your mind that complains a lot, or worries a lot, or. Um, gets irritable a lot, or feels guilty all the time. Yeah? Something wrong with me. I'm not good enough, this kind of experience. Something wrong with me. I need to be better than I am. These are these ghosts that haunt us. Your mind gets a bit calm. It sounds so convincing. You look at, who's that? This is just the mind, you know, losing strength going into a uh, fogginess. Now, often mindfulness itself is, uh, as you probably know, is a now quite popular topic, and uh, it can be used for all kinds of things, mindfulness of sports, mindfulness of, uh, um, you know, just relaxing a bit when you're in business, mindfulness in the office, mindfulness in school, mindfulness for in hospitals, you can even do it in 
in Britain they have a mindfulness in national health, teaching mindfulness. So it's the way of people getting out of depressed states where their minds just keep spinning around the same old negative cycles. You know, so just come into your body, don't buy into that negative cycle, establish mindfulness in your body, you know, and then this stuff you can you know, you detach from it because you know, you're not getting caught in it, you've got an anchor. This anchoring effect of mindfulness is one of its attributes. Uh, the Buddha said, well, you know, you can imagine the, the, the senses themselves, and he likened it to um, six different animals, like a snake, dog, um, rabbit, elephant, peacock, or something, anyway, six different animals. And, uh, you know, they're all tied together. So when we see something, it pulls our mind. You know, when we hear something, it pulls your mind. And, it, and they're kind of all t- tethered together. So one of them, but they go in different directions. Yeah. <laughs> so the snake wants to go down a hole. The bird wants to go in the air. The monkey wants to climb a tree. The elephant sees some nice bamboo over there to eat. And they'll pull us around. <laughs> This is the sense, sense doors, you know, something to hear, something to taste, something to smell, something to think about. And he said, mindfulness is like a, like a stake, and you drive it into the ground, and you tie these animals to the snake, they can't pull. And they begin, they begin to sit down, because they struggle and pull, and then you, mm, they can't get out, so they begin to soften and relax. Um, so this is one feature of mindfulness. It creates a kind of firm pillar of bearing in mind, you know, just the sense of the mind itself anchored in the body, anchored in the sense of not the touch sense of the body, but the, the inner sense, the presence of the body. Um, now, you know, mindfulness we use in a number of ways, but in Buddha Dhamma we're using it specifically for liberation, yeah, for the realization of Nibbana, the direct way. And a number of, uh, you know, kind of understandings come out of, out of that. One is that mindfulness is something very very on narrow points, on small points, but uh, that isn't mentioned in the suttas. That mindfulness is the present moment, that isn't mentioned in the suttas. In fact, the Buddha says, when well, uh, someone is mindful, remembers teachings that were given long ago. They remember the essence of teachings that were given long ago. So it's not about present moment. It's about bearing something in mind. Hmm? And when you think of something like present moment, well, how long is a moment? <laughs> I mean, it's all present, isn't it? There's not a moment to it. We are living in present, but sometimes the present manifests as memory, sometimes it manifests as expectation of the future, sometimes in the present what's manifesting is thoughts and concerns about life somewhere else, you know? There's no moment to it. It's not because who's, 
You know, the moment's on clocks. <laughs> There's no moment. How long is a moment? Yeah. Uh, so it's just this sense of bearing in mind and mindfulness never appears alone. So, you, so in the, you see it described as the, um, in the Eightfold Path. Yeah. It's one of the factors of the Eightfold Path. Yeah. And so with this, we have as we right view, right effort, so forth. It doesn't mean you have to drop right view in order to be mindful. <laughs> you know, all, it means that these factors should are kind of present, and right view is present all the time. There are three particular uh, factors that are constantly present uh, in the cultivation of the Eightfold Path. One is right view, one is right effort, one is right mindfulness. The cultivation of the path, those are always there. So right view is the understanding and the confidence in cause and effect that we can, what we do has an effect. And that we can bring around causes and conditions that are for our welfare and the welfare of others. So this has, that's there all the time. Uh, and right effort means there's a sense of purposeful application whether that's just about sitting still breathing in and out noticing what's going on there's some sense of your mind is applied to a theme even the theme is just being aware of what's going on as an application sati is we bear in mind so that we can learn Having borne this in mind, what does it tell me? Having stayed with this thought, or this mood, or this physical sensation, or this idea, what does it tell me? That's the way you learn. Now, so there's always these different factors involved. They don't act singly. So mindfulness doesn't act singly. It acts because it's more like a hand than an eye. See, so your hand, now, to hold, if you bear something, but like holding something in your hand, now for that you need an arm. <laughs> Hands can't do it on their own. <laughs> right? yeah. And there needs to be some sense of how you hold it. If it's a, um, you know, a delicate object, you hold it carefully, very gently. If it's a living creature, you hold it carefully. If it's a lump of wood, you hold it another way. If it's a very fine, delicate thing, and so forth. And the Buddha said you should meditate as if you're holding a bird, a living bird. If you hold it too tight, you kill it. If you don't hold it firm enough, it flies away. So you should hold, you know, hold your mind like holding a bird. It's firm, but it's not crushing. So there's a certain sensitivity there, isn't there? And when, when we bear something in mind, it's not just a you know, fixed system, it's flexing, it's ability to flex. This quality of flexibility is called, um, uh, first of all, deep attention, it means you know 
roughly what the object is you're going to be holding in mind. You're going to sense, oh, this is a bird, or this is a dangerous snake, or this is a sharp object, right? So you, you get that before you even hold it. You, well, don't even pick bear that in mind, because don't, don't hold a snake. <laughs> you know, don't hold a red-hot ball. So, so you have this called deep attention, yoni somewhere sarkara, and that tells you, gives you a sense of what is useful to bear in mind right now. What is useful to be mindful of? What particular theme? Yeah. So that is has wisdom in it. It uh, is involved with right view. What you bear in mind will definitely bring effects to you. So you should be careful what you bear in mind. There is such a thing as wrong mindfulness, which is bearing things in mind, holding things in mind that cause you distress, agitation, passions. Yeah, these are things you should. You only saw Nisikara, deep attention is there to to determine what you should bear in mind. And as you get more skillful at it, you can even look at this particular meditation. I can't get that one. I'll do this one instead. You select the meditation theme. Could be walking, and you select it not like I can never sit still, but right now this is what seems appropriate. And you just got to do this trial and error. Now it feels better to do some walking, there's some energy needed. And my mind feels sleepy and dull. I need to walk up and down. Uh, now I've achieved that sense of stability, I would benefit from sitting to more deeply enter into that. So this is the factor, the wisdom factor of, of appropriate or deep attention. And that operates along with mindfulness. It's like tells you what to pick up and how to um, select. Now, within meditation, within your focus of, of that, as you pick something up, another quality comes in called sampajanya, which is translated as full knowing or full awareness. And this is another wisdom faculty, and it begins to manifest as you acquire, as your mind acquires a degree of composure, it settles. So the knowing begins to rise. You can't force it, you can't, you know, um, make it happen, but apart from just to be very mindful of a suitable object, the knowing arises. This knowing um, is uh, knowing, essentially knowing the, the changing nature of things. Begins to witness how things change and shift. Uh, so this is another faculty of wisdom that occurs in line with mindfulness. So you have a number of things that happen there. The quality of energy in, in meditation, sometimes called atapi, which means one is eager, one is keen. Yeah. So we see in meditation there's a, there's a blending of many different faculties to do with wisdom, to do with energy, to do with composure, that all gather together to support mindfulness and that mindfulness makes available. 
So it's quite a, a multi, multifaceted um, process. As we're bearing in mind in terms of the, the path, is this leading to the elimination of hindrances or not? Now then you, you use this deep attention, this inquiry to begin to recognize that is the mind becoming more composed? Is the knowing fully established? Is a sense of awareness of things changing, or does the mind get locked, stuck in things? So, this is all what occurs within the practice of meditation. It's by no means just a technique. Techniques can help um, encourage certain faculties and features, uh, attention, um, you know, so on. But really it's important to get an understanding of the, of the path and the wisdom faculties and the calming faculties that are, have to be encouraged. Right view, right effort, right mindfulness. Right view, understanding the path, causes and conditions. Right effort, the right way, the right amount of effort to the right, in place in the right places and right mindfulness bearing in mind so you both know the results and you know what you and you are you, you, you reap the results and you build upon them and famously uh, we have this uh, teaching on the four establishments of mindfulness and this uh, term satipatthana um, seems to be an abbreviation of two words sati upatana and it means you are bringing sati close up to. You're bringing, you're bringing this quality of the ability to bear in mind close up to. And then there's a list of the four um, places or the four areas. The body, kaya, chitta, mind, mind states, um, what the chitta is being affected by. Um, Oh, that's the third. The second is feeling, um, mental and physical feeling. The third is what the mind states are being evoked. And the fourth is to do with dhammas, that is, phenomena that are relevant to the process of liberation, such as hindrances and enlightenment factors. And you bear that, this whole thing in mind. Now, it sounds like a lot, but actually, you can do it within mindfulness of the body. Well, like Russian dolls, you know, one's inside the other. You enter through mindfulness of the body. And uh, there are a number of uh, ways in which the body can be born in mind mindfully. We can contemplate, and it begins with mindfulness of breathing. You're aware of this. It starts with that. In other words, we begin to experience an inner body, called a body amongst the bodies. 
sometimes refer to like this is a one body amongst the bodies. It's the body you experience when you're breathing in and out. And uh, so, when you, you know, your eyes are closed or even open, you feel breathing in and out, there's no hair on it, <laughs> no teeth in it, no eyeballs in breathing in and out, no ears, there's no tongue, there's no knees, it's just breathing in and out is like this. Huh? That's a, that particular body. It becomes a, um, a kind of, has a quality to it, a steady, soft but rhythmic flowing quality. It's a very simple body, a body of breathing. And you experience that. Now it starts with that because it's necessary to, to find this or to access this to enable us to look with more dispassion towards other ways in which the body is perceived that we often are quite moved by, such as um, the, the, the outer form of the body, the visual body, which gets a lot of attention. The visual body, the body we see with our eyes. And, you know, much depends upon this. This is the body that is, occurs in social contact, People see bodies, oh, that's you, hello. Um, and we all recognize that they have the tendency to die, break up, be dead, fall apart, not look very nice at all. And that beneath the skin that we see is the raw flesh, meat, fat, bones, sinews, blood, organs, things that we really wouldn't particularly you know, put on display. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, well, you know, this is my friend. You know, you see a lump of organs. They say, no, no. <laughs> I see a nice smiley face. <laughs> um, so, but then we also recognise that that's there, isn't it? Everybody has organs and liver and blood and fat and so forth and bones. So, if we're really honest about it, it's there. And why, why is it so difficult? Because we get very much attached to the smooth surface as what we like to present or who we are. Now, when you've got another one, you've got this inner body, which feels rather pleasant, it's not fat, blood, sinews, hair, and so forth, it doesn't seem to get old, it's not male or female, you don't have to, so you have to get kind of sexual uh, uh, measurements on it, yeah, it's pretty comfortable. So why don't you stay with this one, and then you can come with the other one. Yeah, it's less of an issue. Because <laughs> this, this body, and your breath body, is the one you've got to live with. The rest of it is what other people see. <laughs> you know, see so your face, you never see your face. Do you? And you can put a lot of attention into doing things to it. But your face is for other people, it's not for you. <laughs> you don't get any benefit from your face. <laughs> Apart from what other people think of, say about your face, you know, hey, spotty or fatso or whatever it is, <laughs> then you get hurt. But if you see, well, this is just a kind of a, something that people see from the outside, it is what it is. I didn't make it like this. And I've got this other thing that I can really 
take care of and treasure. And so this is a very big shift. Because this inner body is much more uh, beneficial and pleasing, less stress. You don't have to dress it, wash it, <laughs> groom it. <laughs> yeah, it's much less stressful. And it makes you feel good. When you sit in that breath body, you start to feel pretty good. Because it's got vitality in it, it's got energy in it. And it's free. That's nice too. Uh, And when it stops, you've got no problem, because that's the end of the game anyway. (laughs) So you don't have to, when it's gone, you're gone. So this is, uh, and then this breath body is also something where you can begin to not just detect physical feeling like impingement from the outside, but you also experience mental feeling. And it helps because um, when you dwell in that, the physical feeling makes less impact. And physical feeling isn't something we can do that much about. You know, you can do, you try the best you can, but, you know, you can probably stub your toe or get sick or get a headache or something might hit you or you get so on. So there's only so much you can do about physical feeling. Best thing to do is to get out of it. (laughs) Is to get out of the range of that. And uh, this mindfulness of breathing, if you absorb into it, just takes you away from the the range of the physical feeling. It's kind of happening like something outside the door. You can maybe hear it or feel it, but it's no longer really jabbing you. It's something out there. And if you're very, if you, you can develop it to the point where actually that it's way out of the building. And instead what becomes stronger is the mental feeling, and a pleasant mental feeling. And actually mental feeling always surpasses physical feeling. Isn't it? Yeah. Always trumps physical feeling. That means if you feel miserable, your mental feeling is low, it really doesn't matter, you know, that your body is free from pain. You still feel bad. So your body can be free from pain, but you're carrying around a, a memory of an insult or a memory of a lost love and you feel miserable. The feeling is dukkha. Even though you're physically fine. And of course, uh, people have a good time, um, enjoy themselves doing things that are physically painful. Right? It's called sport. Well, sport seems to be a process to me of people running around getting exhausted, occasionally breaking a leg, straining muscles, uh, sweating, uncomfortable. And people love it, people love it. Skiing, oh, possibility of going over the edge of a precipice and killing myself, wonderful. Exciting, you know, adrenaline rush. Yeah. Boxing, getting my head beat, beat in. <laughs> Football, people who try and kick machines, run around with, you know, this sort of thing. People love it. Uh, <laughs> because the mental feeling is so strong. 
And somebody I was talking to, a, a, a person who did long distance running, and he said at a certain point as you run, he, the, the, um, you also get this, the, the mental feeling is so good that it, uh, eventually what happens is that these kind of endorphins, these start, chemicals start to be produced, you don't even feel the, the fact that your feet are falling apart, you know, the toes, your skin's coming off your feet because you're just so high on this, um, what this exercise, what this exercise does. So the mind uh, can actually trigger chemicals in the body and make you feel good. Mental feeling always surpasses physical feeling. And with uh, meditation, we're beginning to just bear that in mind. Mm. Turning your attention, so we have physical pain, then, yeah, physical pain I can't do so much about, but I can sense that my mind tightening up and fighting and struggling and, oh, I don't want this, and trying to wriggle away from it. I can sense my mind trying to stub that pain out, like stamping on a fire. My mind is, is not comfortable. So instead, you know, one exercise in meditation is just when you feel physical discomfort to deliberately focus on your breathing so that that quality of calm, steady energy is present and you, as you breathe in and out, you bring that quality to bear upon your physical discomfort. So you have a pain in your leg, your knee or something, you breathe all the way down from your chest down to your ankle. So if your energy, as you breathe, you bring your awareness through the whole sweep through the entire area, from your chest down to your ankle or from your head down to your toe and then breathe in and out like this. So it sounds a soothing uh, rhythm. And the mind, instead of getting seized by the pain, oh, there's, there's the pain there, there's the pleasant, comfortable pain, pleasant, comfortable pain, pleasant, comfortable. And it begins to not get so tied to pain. Hmm? Not get so tied to it. As you know, you know, if you have a you hold your you stick a pin in one finger, you don't notice the rest of the fingers are not experiencing pins, you notice the one that's got the pin in it, right? Because the mind goes to that. But you can, without ignoring that, widen your attention to include your entire hand, your wrist, your arm. And that pain diminishes in its impact the impact called pasa, contact impression, diminishes. This is a physical pain. Now, it still may be there, but this exercise becomes even more um, liberating in terms of mental pain. Mental pain, I feel hurt, I feel offended, I feel disliked, I feel betrayed, I feel... Uh, whatever, you know, there's some mental pain. And you stay in your body, acknowledging the mental pain, and you bring your mind onto your breathing, breathing enough, sensing that, you relax, 
use the breathing to relax your mind and your mind drops mental pain. Essentially with mental feeling, you know, the reaction of the mind towards unpleasant feeling is to try to defend, it contracts, it tightens up. Don't let that happen to me. Or it fights, punches it, go away, you know. It holds on to the memory of where that pain came from. This person hurt me. So it holds on like that. And um, you can do this for years. You, know, you can do this for many years. You can still hold this pain. And what encouraging is instead of this reaction to time, up, to, to actually open up. Like, you know, as you being more fully willing to be present with the painful feeling and almost lean into it, breathing into it, as if you don't want it to go away. Yeah. You don't, you're not trying to make it go away, you're just opening up to it, softening to it. And this is it, it stops this cycle of agitation and resistance that keeps the pain there. So, but you can do that within your body. Doesn't mean you, you use the body as a source of uh, strength and by energy to hold the mind and to uh, stop it spinning out into narratives and stories and memories and so forth. It keeps it calm. You ground it in that. You like the stake of mindfulness stops the mind, so you get to the point. Instead of, why is she like this? Why did they do that? How dare you do this to me? Pain. We get to the point. And uh, mind states, uh, you know, these are uh, Experienced within the within the body, you can experience mind states arising and passing. Now, if you don't have that foundation, when a mind state rises, you are that mind state. You are the happiness or the unhappiness. You are the positive feeling or the negative mood. You are the disappointment. You are the anger. You are the comfort, you are it, and it goes and it goes on and you're spinning. So mindfulness and mind states requires you to have a firm foundation so that you can do this drawing back, withdrawal from engagement with the mind state. I talked about this well before Viveka, withdrawing from the mind state, not to ignore it, but to stand back from it. Where do you stand back? You stand in your body. And you notice these mind states arising and you notice them passing. This in essence is the uh, ongoing process. And we do the same with uh, um, hindrances. You notice them arising and passing, and you begin to notice 
what causes them to arise and pass, the triggers of them, the catalysts. It's generally mind states. So without, unless one has the capacity to, uh, for the knowing to come forth, then essentially we keep becoming the mind state, the hindrance, the good feeling, the bad feeling, we feel we are those experiences. That's all there is. So mindfulness is there to act as a foundation for the knowing to arise. The knowing is of a different dimension. It's not a feeling, it's not a sensation, it's not a body, it's not a mental factor, it's uh, it's, the, it's this ability, to, it's this detachment of sense of knowing, awareness. Sampajanya, clear awareness of the arising and passing of things. And, um, you know, this means that you can, there's a visual body that comes and goes, doesn't it? Sometimes I can see bodies or see my body, bits of it, that changes. Um, different phenomena in the body, hunger, feelings, energies, they come and go. Sleepy, energized, even in sleep you can contemplate. Or when you're going to sleep you can contemplate. Also very important to notice some of these twilight areas. Like when you're going to sleep, lying down, composing yourself, notice how your experience is changing. It becomes perhaps less definite, more and um, less directed. And so you, the very sense of who you are keeps shifting and changing. And the result of that, as you integrate it, is that whatever it is, whether it's you know me being bright and intelligent, or me being confused, or you know, you know this is just the show. It's just the passing show. Um, you don't have to be embarrassed by it, or proud of it, or averse to it. You know, you know this is the limitations of the conditioned realm. And the knowing, and the more that that is integrated, bearing the knowing in mind, the freer you get from circumstance. It doesn't mean circumstances don't occur, and, you know, with all their complexities, but you'll find this point where they don't, you don't have to get entangled with them. There's clarity. Now, you know, in terms of practical application, this is very practical because it doesn't mean you should completely ignore the rest of life. It means that function, that faculty of knowing withdrawal means that you can approach circumstances with dispassion. You know, you sense, oh, this is the appropriate thing to do. A friend of mine said he had a, a, a colleague, he, the colleague was a doctor, and uh, he was having a night out or an evening out with his 
girlfriend, his partner, and she had a heart attack. And he panicked. And because he panicked, he got confused, he didn't know what to do, because he was so attached to her. And she died. So the sense of dispassion doesn't mean, you know, it actually makes you more clear, because instead of panicking, you stop, you're aware, your mind is clear, you can then approach the topic of your concern with full faculties, with an unshaking mind. And then whatever you do, it's going to be the best you can, the best you can accomplish. So there's very practical applications of uh, mindfulness and full awareness. Well, for our meditation practices, you build on all that. It gives you, continues to give you confidence in the knowing and in changeability that whatever arises, the nature to pass. This means if we start, we can allow things to arise. Sometimes there's things we'd rather like them to pass quickly. <laughs> like you feel overwhelmed with grief. You know, sometimes people have this, somebody dies, you know, just all kind of very confused and full of sorrow. I don't want that to arise, but it won't pass until you allow it to arise. <laughs> That's the law. <laughs> and, you know, because if we try to, you know, not have it happen, then the mind closes, and then you're, you're going to get hit by that experience. It's going to happen anyway. So, this means that in the face of powerful emotion, our response, rather like the same, repeating the same with unpleasant mental feeling, instead of, how can I deal with this, how can I make it go away, how can I get myself together, how can I be you're in charge and in control of things. No. Meet the unpleasant emotion, the embarrassing emotion, <laughs> the confusing emotion. In your body, stay present. Let it fill. Stay in your body. And let it move through you. Now we can only do that if we have mindfulness of body. If you're just in your mind, in your emotions, when, those, when the tsunami comes, <laughs> then you're blown away by it. The mind has to be in the body in order to get that fundamental foundation for the knowing to arise. This is why mindfulness of the body comes first. Until we can stand, we have the ability to withdraw from the the heat of the fire and stand back. You have to have something to withdraw into, a place to stand. This is what this inner body is for. You stand in that, and even if the mood is strong and powerful, you've got a sense of an anchor. You can't, it's not, you're not going to get an anchor in your thoughts. Often when people get flummoxed, or panic, or rather try to think, what should I do, what should I do? Why am I like this? When will it pass? What's going to happen? Why will this happen to me? 
And something, well, is it because of past life? What can I do? You know, this man of me thinking is not going to work. You can't think your way out of any emotion. <laughs> it doesn't work. It doesn't respond to that at all. But that can be our default. Uh, you know, because we so imagine thinking mind is the supreme faculty. It isn't the supreme faculty. It can do some things, other things it's completely useless with. You're trying to think yourself out of grief, fear. You know, you can sort of suppress it, but you've got to keep thinking and thinking and thinking, it, it won't go away. What is the supreme faculty is knowing. The knowing, the awareness that this is of the nature to arise. It rises up. Feel it rising. Feel it affecting your skin, your face, your blood. Feel it affecting your temperature. And within that, feel the sense of establishment of mindfulness in the body. You're steady there. And you let the wave rise and move through. And often these particular powerful emotions will tend to come not just one wave. It comes in one wave, passes, oh, that's over, it comes again, another wave. <laughs> you know, it's not, it don't just generally come in one neat time, they just come washing up. And again, but every time you stand there, the wave breaks over you and you stand there and you're a little stronger because you know it's going to pass. You know you can bear with it. And you know you don't have to defend yourself, or worry about it, think about it, blame yourself, feel you should be another way. You just know you should abide in the knowing. And mindfulness of the body is the direct way to um, establish that. The Buddha said, you know, you only touch the deathless through mindfulness established in the body. This is the place where all, just as he said, like the ocean gathers all the streams into it. So all finds of wisdom collect into mindfulness of the body. That's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? And uh, at the same time, Mindfulness of body is probably the easiest thing to do. You know, it's a big, well, speaking personally, rather big, lumpy thing. <laughs> you can walk along, you can feel it plump, walking up and down, you can sense the postures of the body, you can feel the skeleton, you can feel the structure, you can lie it down, sit it up, breathe it out. You've got something that you, you can use wherever you are. When you're in a traffic jam, you can feel hands on the steering wheel, seat on the, in the, in the, sitting on the, on the cushion. Yeah, that's okay. I'm sitting still. So? <laughs> Instead of, I should be getting to somewhere else, you know, why am I here? Why, how long will I be here? What good is that going to do you? Mindfulness of the body 
Here the body is now sitting. Then, you know, the rest of it doesn't have to happen, does it? Or if it does happen, you've got a way to withdraw from it, from minds of power and the passion of mind states. So, this probably isn't anything new, but that's the idea. We're just, in fact, rehearsing, revising, inking in, repeating these themes for encouragement to build upon the understanding that we have, to confirm the understanding we have, and maybe to add little details of the picture that we didn't have. This is why um, I'm offering this talk. So, here you are.